Hey everyone, and welcome to our March Open System Podcast. My name is Landon Mascareñas, and I'm your host. First off, thanks Chris DeWitt for your awesome opening track. Chris is a great friend and colleague in the Denver Ed System, and he made that opening custom track for our podcast. Thanks, Chris. We have a really awesome show today. We have Riley Farrow Carter from Climb Higher Colorado. I love Climb Higher Colorado. They are doing so many amazing things in the Denver Ed space. They are leading um, to promote open system work, not only in their coalition of grass tops and grassroots um, coalition partner members, but they are also helping school districts all around the state of Colorado think differently about how to open up their systems for high-impact family engagement, best practice activities. The executive director of Climb Higher Colorado, Riley, who we'll be talking to today, is someone who I've known for a few years Um just a huge admirer of Riley, her dedication to kids, what she's put in front of her organization, how she's led from a co-creation and, co- and co-development stance with her partners and the school district she intends to work with. Um, we got to first know each other when she was investing in some of the work I was doing at Denver Public Schools and family engagement. And through her, I got to know the larger network that she was a part of, which is now called Seat Common Ground which is a network of organizations and coalitions dedicated to pursuing um, great things for kids all over this country. And, you know, I've just been so impressed with Riley. Love working with her. She's an amazing uh, friend, colleague, and thinker in this space. And I just think you're going to really enjoy this conversation where we talk about her work, her passion, and why she's making it happen. So with no further ado, Riley Farrow Carter. Cool. Riley, it's so great to see you. You too. Thanks for having me. So um, excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, obviously, I'm a big fan of yours, <laughs> and um, I'm looking forward to having this conversation because we've worked on a lot of stuff together over the past couple of years. And so um, I'd love for you to kind of kick us off with tell us about your organization, Climb Higher, where it came from, what it's about, and, and what are you looking at right now? And then we'll kind of spend some time going from there. Yeah. Well, first I'll start and just say thank you. Uh, The fandom is mutual and um, I'm glad that there's a space for these conversations. So appreciate being on. Um, Yes. So Climb Higher is an education coalition that was started in 2014 and that focus was really around how do we move forward with the Colorado academic standards and aligned assessments. So a bit of context is Colorado had this burst of statewide education policy um, that happened in the late 2000s. So 2008, we passed a piece of legislation called the Colorado Academic Plan for Kids, or CAP for K, or if you really want to get nerdy, 212, Senate Bill 212. What what part of the session (laughs) would Senate Bill 212? Yes, exactly, exactly. So it just depends on uh, how wonky you want to get. But so that was um, a higher ed, business leaders, K-12, a number of folks coming together to say, wow, we are not graduating enough kids, and the kids that are graduating, not enough are persisting onto college, and those Mm -hmm. that do persist onto college or into a career typically are needing more remediation than we should be ever allowing. Um, And so how do we revamp our system, really looking at what a graduate of our public education system should know um, and be able to do, and then mapping that backward all the way down to school readiness. And then what are the measurements along the way, so the tests that need to go along with that to make sure that we're holding up to the promises that we've set through our standards. So this massive piece of legislation passes in 2008, um, and uh, 
we have a history in Colorado of not usually passing big pieces of education legislation with very much funding from mm-hmm. the state. Um, and so uh, there were some groups that were working to say, how do we help with implementation? What is this going to look like on the ground? And at the same time, the whole storm around Common Core um, and assessments was starting to get brewing. So this coalition came together in 2014. Um, once it had been a few years, implementation was moving and people um pretty openly knew that Common Core was uh, politically toxic and the testing associated with it was also. And so this coalition was formed um, to say, how do we push back on that? And our area that we can support with implementation is really around the politics. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we get enough folks to not vote that we should take this stuff off the book so that we can actually see what implementation does? So let's kind of pause there for a second, because I want to like actually take our listeners back to that period in our country's history for education reform you know we kind of i think take it for granted that we were kind of in the middle of the great recession race to the top the stimulus package health care and like during the middle of all that the obama administration quietly champions um uh, something from the national governors association which is the common core designed by policymakers teachers and educators to kind of codify what rigorous academic learning for the 21st century is. And then somewhere over the course of a few years, like nearly every state in the country decides to adopt this. Yeah. Which is a you know pretty radical shift. From my experience, um, one of my one of the folks I got a chance to work with in graduate school, you know, his thing was that like they were hoping to get standards sometime in like the mid-21st century. You know, yeah. it was like it, the people thought that was like a long way away. It suddenly starts happening. So it's natural to imagine there's going to be some political or policy challenges with that radical of shift pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, you look at the history of this and and conversations about consistent, rigorous standards really started within the Reagan era. Um, And so you have all this time that passes where this is sort of in the conversation within education folks of, oh my gosh, we need this, we need to move in this direction. And then within the span of a couple of years, you see the movement, the design, and then the implementation across 45 states, at least around um, math and English language arts through Common Core. And so the fact that Colorado was taking on 10 content areas, which included math and English language arts, but much um, broader areas as well, was part of that dialogue. So often it's talked about as a separate project that was going on, and then, oh, it just happens that Common Core is happening. But that was really where a lot of the policy minds were at, which is if we can up the expectations for all kids and make sure that there's consistency Mm -hmm. within states and across states, we think we're going to be moving to a more globally competitive place. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's take, take back to that time period. You know, there's battles in lots of states, most famously in places like Oklahoma, Indiana, but they're all over the place where folks on the left and the right are kind of uniting against this effort. They, you know, I think Obama mentions it in the State of the Union, which freaks some people on the right out. Yep. Um, what does the political landscape look like in Colorado for, and why is your coalition in the middle of some of that work? Yeah, um, so it's interesting. The Common Core in Colorado, this is a funny small fact, but only two partner organizations came and testified when the state board decided to adopt Common Core and embed that into Mm -hmm. our academic standards. Um, And so there were definitely the same sort of um, 
more conservative concerns about um, multi-state or national uh, standards and expectations that education is definitely a place where mm-hmm. we hold on to local control and we mean that as local as it gets in Colorado. Yeah. Um, so I think that was some of the pushback, but where you saw the politics really flare up was around testing. Yeah. Um, and so that was where you saw a coalition of the far left and the far right come together. Mm-hmm. Um, so different motivations as to yeah. was it an overreach of government? Was it intrusion? Was it privacy? Was it the that were stressing kids out. It didn't really matter. Um, I think underlying that or the cynicism that a lot of folks that were more in the middle ground that had believed in these policies felt like it was um, some of the far left that was concerned about the ties between accountability and testing. So all of that starts brewing and by the 2015 um, legislative session in Colorado, there were over 10 pieces of legislation to either repeal or replace the Common Core or testing. Um, So it was clear that there was a lot of momentum Um, eventually a piece of bipartisan legislation was passed that reduced our state testing, didn't Mm -hmm. touch the standards, um, could hold that piece off, um, and that was really what could guide our conversations about how do we make thoughtful adjustments to implementations. Um, And that's where I think the coalition, it came together in 2014 just to say, how are we not stepping on one another's toes? And you've mentioned this coalition before. Who's in this coalition and what what does it look like? Yeah. So um, it is about, you know, 20 to 25 organizations. It um, really started with some of our grass tops partners here in Colorado. Um, It was brought together by the Rose Community Foundation who said, I can see that we have these various partners, whether it's the Colorado Education Initiative or the Children's Campaign or Colorado Succeeds. Um, that are all interested in, in how implementation around standards and assessments are going, but yeah. they the power dynamic is such that they're all equal sort of on in the policy space. And, so, and they're all taking it from a different slice. Yes. Right. And how can their constituencies help engage in this conversation? So originally it was a pretty small conversation with just a group of partners that were thinking about Um, Where do we need to be? Who do we need to be talking to to make sure that there's understanding of these policies? Um, And quickly, uh, I will give credit to Janet Lopez, who's at the Rose Community Foundation. She recognized that we didn't have any representation of groups um, that do community-facing work. And so formed um, with some funding that they had formed a group called the Alliance. And originally, the Alliance was together Colorado, Padres Unidos, Stanford Children, and Great Ed Colorado, all focused on, um, it's great to make the policy argument or the data argument on why this stuff matters, but if we are not ensuring that families and students are lending their voice and their experience to this conversation, we're gonna lose sort of the why um, of, that drove all of this work. So let's like talk about that for a little bit, and then I wanna kinda get to where you're at now and climb higher, and, yep. um, and then we can talk about little more about yourself and why you're passionate about this work because I think that's a really important part of the story. Um, it, in my experience uh, working in education work, it's very rare to have the grass tops and grassroots groups together in one space. Mm-hmm. How is that unique in Climb Higher and how have you tried to use that as an opportunity? Yeah, it's um, it felt rare to me as well. I think that my experience had been fairly transactional and um, 
pretty traditional power dynamics leading up to um, the time that I joined the climb higher. And, and so by that, I mean, you know, okay, we have this initiative where we're trying to change a policy within a district or at the state level, man, it would be great to have some parents come and speak to this. And so once the policy is fully baked and things are moving, um, then we really look to our partners that are doing grassroots organizing and ask them to lend their voice to that. Um, And so pretty quickly, um, I had the realization when I joined Climb Higher, which was in May of 2015, mm-hmm. that we could be doing and learning so much more with our partners that were on the ground. And by then, there had been a transition where instead of Great Ed, Denver Public Schools had joined mm-hmm. the Alliance, but it was still um, just four organizations and thinking about how I had the capacity, this is what I was dedicating all of my work to, um, and I had other folks that were working with me there we were a team of three people and so if we weren't listening and learning from the students and the families and the educators that we were getting to engage with through mm-hmm. our community facing partners we were missing this opportunity to understand what does implementation look like and feel like from their perspective because it was never explicitly said but it was always sort of underlying the conversation that um, these shifts in policy should really be impacting kids that we know are not getting a high quality education. Yeah. And so let's talk to those families and see if, if they're ever feeling the impact of this work or not. So let's use that to pivot to where Climb Higher is at now. Because I know that thinking about families is a huge part of your work, working with systems, thinking about families. Tell me about where Climb Higher is at now and where it's, where it's moving in the next stage of the work. Because I think this is a really exciting kind of where you're at. Yeah, it's been very fun um, to just have this organically grow and transition over time. And um, I say that term knowing that it's used all the time, that, you know, we're trying to say that things are organic and whether or not they are um, is mixed. And I would say... I was there during the process. It was felt, <laughs> it felt pretty dang organic. Yeah. You know? I think you were trying to follow a lot of what you saw was making you excited and other people excited in the work. Yeah. yeah. So we had a coalition conversation. We've had a retreat every year in the summer to kind of reflect on the work that we've done and then think about the year ahead. Mm-hmm. And in um, the summer of 2017, I really laid out for the partners. And I should say, you know, when I mentioned that there's 20, 25 partners, that's where the coalition is now. So we started out pretty small yeah. um, and it's grown, which makes me very happy because mm-hmm. to me, that's an indicator that there's something going on that people are willing to stick around and new people are willing to, to join in the conversation. And so we had about 25 of those partners and laid out for them two paths. One of which was um, we keep this narrow focus on implementation of standards and assessments and we wind down as a coalition. And so we spend down the rest of the funding that we have and we exist through 2018 and then we go away. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I um, initially thought was probably the best path for the coalition. Um, But as the work had evolved, I could see some potential that was broader than that. So I said the other path is that we spin off we had been existing as just this side project of the rose community foundation so we spin off we become our own 501c3 and we broaden our focus we have um more issue areas that we can engage in than just standards and assessments but 
that we are an ongoing convening space for grassroots and grass tops partners. Mm -hmm. Because to your point, um, everything that I was hearing from the partners is that it really was the only space that partners had that they could come to where they could say, hey, let's talk to an issue, or this is cropping up, are you aware of it? And talk across organizational lines in an ongoing way. Um, and that people were saying, actually, that feels pretty valuable. And so um, to the coalition's credit, they I laid this out for them. And um, they said, we don't exactly know what you mean when you say, you know, keep going forward and have a broader focus. Um, but we feel like that's probably a, the right place for you. And so they gave their blessing. Um, and my immediate reaction was, okay, I should figure out what this means. And yeah. so turned inward a little bit and started thinking, okay, what should this, what, what should we change within the um, coalition? What should we keep this same? And came to this recognition, thankfully, um, with the push of you and other partners to say, wow, these are just too complicated questions that I should not be figuring out on my own. And so then designed a strategic planning process that really encompassed a co-creation mindset to say, let's let's figure out what are the hardest, most complicated questions yeah. that are plaguing the future of this coalition, and let's just open them up to the coalition and have that discussion and the dialogue. And it was an incredible experience that then led to some real clarity around what the work will look like going forward. So, I mean, I want to talk about the work. I want to talk about the family engagement stuff, but I want to dive into co-creation just for a minute while we're on it. It seems to me that a lot of leaders would be scared about opening up a co-creation process. And by co-creation, we mean like you are literally designing problem discussions, solution sets, strategies, tactics with 25 plus partners and organizations with tons of different purposes and tons of different um, individual agendas. Um, was that scary? What did you learn from leading a process like that that you would encourage other leaders to start thinking about? Yeah, I mean, it was... Definitely, it, all the things that scare me with the coalition are um, wasting my partner's time yeah. or, or um, lifting the curtain and finding out that we're not a value add. And so um, I think opening it up and allowing for the conversation to take place is actually um, really comforting to me and really reaffirming to me. And so I think, you know, I don't know if an organization that it has been in existence for a long time, how they would go about that co-creation process, because I think you've put some different stakes in the ground. Yeah. And so knowing that we had somewhat of a, of, you know, an open landscape in front of us made it so I didn't feel like we had to go one direction or the other. Yeah. Um, and, and I was taking taken aback by the level of interest that partners showed and they're just their willingness to say let's help problem solve when you say this do you know that this is how it sounds to me and then I could recalibrate and so I was very intentional with the design of the process so that we're maximizing every opportunity that we brought partners together um, we also I was very intentional that I wanted to have different avenues so I did these yeah. small group conversations that I would say were what I got the most out of, um, where we took those big, hairy questions head on. Um, but I also did some really deep survey work. I did. I tried to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with every single partner. Yeah. Um, tried to so have just a number of different ways where partners could feel comfortable giving honest feedback because something that I say often in our coalition space is that 
Um, we're, we are a partner-facing organization. Yeah. And so it's not about figuring out what is Climb Higher going to do and then how do I go tell the world about it. It is how am I designing Climb Higher so it's an actual value add for my partners and then going and fulfilling that. Um, and then their work gets better and um, and we can support one another in a fundamentally different way. And so if they weren't bought into it, we wouldn't get to that place. So tell me about... So you, it sounds like what I'm, if I'm repeating, repeating back a little bit about what you just heard you say, you did one-on-ones with everyone in your coalition, you did small group conversations, whole group conversations, you looped back to people, um, you maximized people's times, you took on big questions. Now, where, where have you landed now? You talked a little bit about your purpose, that you're going to be like a multi-issue convening space for folks. What else it, did this process lead you to in terms of your priorities as an organization? Yeah, um, the thing that I think is nice, uh, the sort of most exciting component of what the whole process led to is that we have three buckets of work, and then yeah. I, that's something I can wrap my head around and my mm-hmm. arms around. So that is helpful. So what you just said, the um, networking partners is sort of our fancy term for continued coalition building, and that. It's funny because I almost overlooked that. Like, oh, yeah, we bring people together. Yeah. Yeah. And to call it out as an explicit component of our work, I think, one, it then challenges me and reminds me that I always have to be thinking about coalition building. Um, And two, it was just great to hear that that's something that partners really valued. Um, And so we have played around with the way that we convene partners. We do monthly coalition meetings. We do, um, we've done some trainings on race and bias and things like that. And so I think we're figuring out how do we continue to play with that space. It doesn't have to look like, oh, you just have a monthly coalition meeting and that's it. Um, So that's one piece. And I would say that's really the partner facing component to Climb Higher's work. And then we have two other areas to our work that we are more the lead on that we invest invite our partners to engage in in different ways. So um, one piece is around family engagement um, and really um, advancing partnerships between educators and families and figuring out what is the right role for an organization that sits outside of the system. We're not associated with the state or a district or a school, um, but how do we have influence and make sure that family engagement is both elevated um, and that when it's talked about and when it's practiced, it's research-based. Yeah. Um, and then we, the third piece to our work is around um, strengthening advocates and This came from that alliance group that I mentioned, but um, really recognizing that you can bring partners together, you can build trust, and those are really, really important. But if you are not ensuring that there is the capacity built within partners so that everyone, um, as much as possible, is on equal equal footing in terms of the power and the influence they have when it comes to systems change, um, you likely aren't going to change dynamics significantly. Um, So this is all kind of complicated language, but what I really mean with that is how do we invest um, really thoughtfully in our community-facing partners so that they can go um, identify what policies they want to work on within districts or the state um, and drive that process. And, of course, doing that in partnership with other organizations but not being called in to help lend the community or the family voice but really identifying what are the things we want to be working on. So one of the things I love about the two different components, and then I want to ask a personal question about why you've come to this work, is that, you know, it sounds like you've led a very powerful, and I've watched it actually closely, that you you have led 
a pretty open-minded process, an open system process for redesigning and reorienting and almost restarting your organization, which I think is a pretty powerful thing. I think a lot of people are really freaked out about doing something <laughs> like that. And they would do it in often very closed ways. They would say, I'm the leader. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're working in on. Um, and that's, that's the closed system. And, you know, and, and if you're going to be a part of this coalition, like you're in or you're out yeah. you know, from this thing. Um, you also are kind of in the business now of trying to open up school districts to parents and families through your family engagement side of your work. And so um, would love to just ask about how you've come to appreciate that as a leadership stance. I think it's something that's, you know, valued by an emerging group of people in this country, not always by all. You know, why have you come to lead your organization like this and prioritize its resources in this way? Yeah, um, the family engagement work is is really interesting to me, and it's definitely where I uh, my skill set is weakest, but I have such an interest and a passion for. And so, um, when I mentioned that DPS had joined the alliance, mm-hmm. um, there were these four organizations, and three were traditional grassroots organizing entities, and then there was Denver Public Schools. And disclaimer: This is when Riley and I got to, got to <laughs> yes. meet each other. Yes, yes. yeah, exactly. Um, so it was your persuasion, and now I know family engagement mm-hmm. super important. Yes. No, <laughs> um, there's some truth to that. Soft subtlety. Yeah. Yes, but um, so. Really, it came from a cynical perspective at first, mm-hmm. and I am a political person. Mm-hmm. And um, as I had come on board with Climb Higher, part of what I had heard from the coalition is they wanted us to find proactive opportunities um, to have conversations about standards and assessments because it had gotten so political and the policy had lost all nuance. So it was you're for or you're against Common Core standards. Uh, part testing whatever it was and so one of the ways that I decided to pursue that was to bring policymakers um, and mostly that was statewide elected or uh, state elected officials um, from the House and the Senate and our state legislature into schools within their districts to t- have conversations with educators about how is implementation of standards and assessments going mm-hmm. and for the most part we got you know these improvements could be made here yeah. are some of the challenges but at the end of the day of course we support standards-based education of yeah. course we need tools of measurement to know um, how kids are doing against those expectations and so it started to bring some of the nuance back and I was really excited about that but then um, there would be this underlying conversation not always but sometimes which was that's okay I get it yeah. we need these as fundamental components to our public education but if parents don't care Mm-hmm. then are we really ever going to see things change for yeah. kids? And that seemed like, you know, not not hard to decode, but a very coded conversation about um, racial bias and, and particularly parents of color, parents from low-income backgrounds, yeah. um, and perceptions about their level of engagement. And so I had heard from talking with Landon and his team um, and, and DPS that they were really having success bringing families into schools around standards nights and doing home visits and rooting conversations around what are the hopes and goals um, for kids and then how does that kind of come into play with the expectations that they're being held to academically. And so I thought, wow, if I could showcase that, it would help negate some of that political conversation. So we partnered around some videos 
videos that just showed parents, you know, totally digging into the standards and um, showing up to what I think are the most boring sounding events that you could go yeah. to a standards night at your elementary school and hundreds of parents would show up. And so it was really both inspiring and also helped counter that political narrative. Yeah. Um, and so at first that was really my driver. And then I would spend more and more time talking with you and with your team and learning and just felt like, okay, it's clear that we know that we have to organize and mobilize our families. But yeah. if we're not starting at a place mm-hmm. um, where we're helping to build partnership between educators and families, it actually feels almost manipulative to go into the organizing yeah. and mobilizing space because um, you know, it's just common sense, but the research backs it up that parents are going to be most engaged when it comes to their individual kid. Um, and then from there, they may go on to the school level. They may go onto the district. They may go onto the state level for trying to drive change, but we need to meet them where they're at. Um, and so I think that it was all making sense to me, but I definitely fell into the sort of air quote, ed reform trap of, um, feeling like, that is great work that someone should totally be doing and that is not ever going to be me yeah. um, and it shouldn't be my organization because, you know, what what business do I have um, when it comes to family engagement? And luckily did the Flamboyant Foundation Fellowship with you um, and a few other folks from Colorado and it just... It, everything shifted where it was, it became very clear this had to be a fundamental component to the work that Climb Higher did. Um, and maybe because of those reasons that I gave that no one else was doing it, uh, but also because I think our, we're continually trying to take this stance through the coalition to say, we can figure out a better way to support kids mm-hmm. in this state. And we should look at the research, we should figure that out. Um, and family engagement is clearly one of those ways where we should be doing more work. So, you know, I'm gonna ask the uh, kind of the, you know, the, the colleague career question here. <laughs> so it's like, you got to work when you were in your previous job at the Colorado Children's Campaign, you were a senior leader there, leading a lot of the kind of important policy work across Colorado. You know, now you're leading a coalition of grass tops and grassroots groups. You're focused on opening up districts for higher impact family engagement strategies. I mean, do your colleagues and uh, friends, do they, do they see the path? Do they see the trajectory? Is it like a, does it make sense to them? I mean, when they, do they understand some of this work and why it matters? I would say yes. They definitely, I think they understand this work. And why it matters. I think what's probably harder to understand for me included is to what end and where does this go? I think we have gotten ourselves in the education space very focused on outcomes and how is what we're doing tied to trying to see shifts in outcomes for kids very quickly. And it's hard for me because leading a coalition, it feels like I'm a little bit further from that um, question. And so I do get that. But I, you know, I think... I have been incredibly impressed with all of my partners that they have said, yeah, you're right. You know, this does feel like it's missing from our ecosystem right now. We don't necessarily talk across lines. It's hard to figure out how to navigate that. And we appreciate that you're trying to give us a shortcut so that we can do more and more of that. I think that there is always a tension with coalition work on... um, 
turf and boundaries and I've never had a partner come to me and express that they're concerned that I'm encroaching on their turf um, which would be totally fair Um, but I am extremely mindful that I need to be very clear about what is our role what are we trying to work toward um, how are we are we doing something that's not already being done by another partner Um, so I've been I've been very um, pleasantly reaffirmed and impressed with the community here that they've just leaned into that. So, you know, in my, in my mind, and I'll admit some of my bias on this, like you're, you're running in my mind what an ideal organization and ecosystem should be. And again, I know I'm, I have a lot of preference and bias in this, that you're bringing groups across difference together to open up dialogue amongst them around common education priorities. You're opening up districts to engage with parents and families more. Um, you know, what do you do with all that potential? And what do you do with all that opportunity? It sounds like, I mean, it, you know, it, it's a dream organization for yeah. many communities out there. Um, you know, when I've had the opportunity this past year to travel a lot and get to know a lot of other communities um, across this entire country, you know, no one's got that mix yet. Yeah. People are building it. People are trying to move in that direction. You're there. Um, what's the potential? What's the opportunity? You know, where, where do you want to go with it? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So short term, I really want to prove that it's not just nice, that it doesn't just feed the soul, but it actually produces better outcomes. Um, And so I'm really excited. Um, We are, we're continuing to figure out what does it look like to launch this work? How do we continue to invest in the partners? But I think we're going to work on some projects throughout 2018 that'll actually yield some different outcomes. And I'm optimistic that people will feel like Um, what we've worked toward and what we've produced is fundamentally different than if we had done things the old way where a small group of partners comes together kind of designs what they want to work on and then partners get brought in over time Um, and and really saying if we if we now keep that co-creation momentum going and we work on projects um, and design solutions in a collective manner, we will see we'll see just a different outcome as a result. So it's a bit of a hunch, but I think that is my most immediate goal from this work. Yeah. And then, you know, pie in the sky, big picture. I want it to be a test case for how we work on systems change. And that's much broader, that's a much broader conversation than education yeah. in Colorado. I think that it's just a way for us to start that. And so if we can showcase that all right, this work can be done because I think people look at it and say, oh, it's a lot to manage and it's messy and you could end up meeting a thousand times without ever doing anything. But so you showcase, all right, here's a way to do it. Here's a structure and approach. And then you can showcase some of the outcomes from the work and you can say, look, we actually drove towards this outcome. We think, you know, the counterfactual based off of history and how things have run previously, we can kind of compare and contrast what we got to and we think this is a better place um, that people people in other areas start to say, wow, we should do that differently. And to me, that is really exciting because that is chipping away at long-term fundamental power structures um, that we perpetuate without even blinking an eye because we don't recognize them that they've been around for so long. And I just think about the type of problems that we have and the challenges that we have in front of us as a state as a country you can you know kind of zoom out as much as you want or zoom in as much as you want and how i am just a fundamental believer that we will get to better solutions
solutions if we start approaching the problem solving in a fundamentally different way. Yeah. So that's, I love that vision. And I think that there's a lot of, there's so much power in that, you know, we could live in a world where all these different groups are working together, maybe through some collective purpose. Maybe some of them are involved in this one issue. Maybe some of them aren't, but they're all kind of keeping informed. Maybe there's an opportunity to engage deeper level. I think that I have to believe that is possible, that like through that action, like more can be attained than in a world where that wasn't happening. I really totally believe that. I mean, it's a big hill to climb. (laughs) Yeah. It's a totally big hill to climb, but I do believe that it's better to have that group together than not. Yeah. And I think that's the power of what you are building and what have built. And so I just think it's a really exciting thing. So I guess um, have, you know, two more final kind of closing questions kind of on that. Yeah. so when we think about our kind of broader society, mm-hmm. you know, where we're at, you kind of started to zoom out kind of at that level. I mean, what can we as a society start to learn from coalition building, um, kind of getting to know parents and families? Like what, what lessons are in there for us as an entire society right now? Yeah, um, I think there are, at least I'll start from from this, that I have yet to have an experience where I sat down, whether it was with a group of students or with a group of parents or a group of educators or a combination, and I haven't walked away um, with, with a shift in the way that I'm thinking about something. And sometimes the my you know the back of my hair pricks up and I feel defensive or I hear something yeah. and I think that's so good and yeah. that you know these are ways to foster that personal growth yeah. um, that really the only other way you get that uh, at least that comes to mind for me is political discussions with people that yeah. have different opinions. different opinions and that's interesting but one I don't you know it's it's yeah. not necessarily leading towards solutions and two I think there's so many other ways we can grow and learn from other folks and so I think um, there is a level of personal growth that can happen um, that is very powerful but I think you know this gets to some core conversations and Mm -hmm. issues that I think our country is taking on about who do we value who do we listen to Um, and yet we see disparities getting bigger um, and we um, we see you know fewer and fewer people at this elite top that are decision makers um, trying to determine what's best for the majority of the people and so if we're not bringing people in and learning from them I don't think we're gonna get towards those big questions. You know, I, I agree with all that. I, I would say that I've become actually quite uh, pessimistic about the impact of, I mean, I think this is super cliche to say at this point, but it's, it seems to me that social media actually has done, has made us, <laughs> has made us, has made us antisocial yeah. and has made us want to have technological solutions to just the, the simple work of sitting down with people yeah. and having conversations and getting to know people across lines of difference. Which is always super scary. Yeah. And let's not act like that was easy before Facebook existed or people did it all the time. But uh, that actually, like, maybe if we have a, you know, a one unit in our life of sitting down across difference, you know, we're now using all that online yeah. versus actually in person. And there's something really, I think, tragic in that. Well, and you said this, you know, sitting down with people um, across lines of difference is super scary. And I think you are much more attuned 
um, to sort of those emotional barriers than most people are. I think most people would say, I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I don't even know what to I, even do. I, like, I don't know. I am white. I, I don't have a group of friends that are people of color that I could go have an honest conversation with or, uh, you know, across lines of class or, you know, whatever it is because you, because of segregation and housing patterns, because of schools, yeah. because of, you know, all of these things of that guilt. are layered yeah. on. Yeah. And, and I think underlying that is fear. There's nothing that stops someone from yeah. having a conversation with someone at the grocery store, um, but it feels awkward or uncomfortable. And so that is in essence, what climb higher is trying to do is to eliminate that excuse yeah. and to say, how do we make this really, really easy um, because for me, you alluded to my, you know, work previously, but I never, I did, I just didn't do this previously. I didn't talk to people outside of my small bubble. And I think that trying to navigate how to do that was really, I didn't, I couldn't figure that out. And so I love that Climb Higher is hopefully for folks that are entering the policy space or have been here for a long time is just this yeah. like, shortcut to saying, well, I need to have a conversation with partners that are doing work on the ground and you've got no reason to not have that now because yeah. we'll see you on Friday at the meeting. Yeah. So I kind of like this is, and this is my final question before I ask my fun questions. <laughs> yes. Um, is, uh, you know, kind of jumping off from there, something I've always really admired and respected of you is when I think about the idea of a white ally, I think of you, I think of like what you do and how you lead. Tell me how you think about allyship and how you think about uh, being a white ally uh, in this work. Um, well, first I'll say thank you. I think um, I we did some identity mapping together, you know, several months ago, and I think I, one of the things that I wrote down is that I am um, issues of race and bias are incredibly important to me and, and, and valued and interesting. And yet I feel so nervous and insecure around them. So it just is nice to hear that. And I think, um, I, you know, a lot of this is I grew up in the eighties and nineties where you didn't talk about these issues. And, um, you, my parents were very focused on your kind to people, you know, the typical colorblindness that is in, in, with a kind of motivation, um, but still colorblindness at the end of the day. And I think I was, I was so asleep, um, to, toward these conversations for so long. And so it was, um, through my role at the Colorado Children's Campaign leading their education policy work that I had some experiences where I looked up and I realized I had not been in classrooms, I had not been talking with educators, I had not talked with families, and I had definitely not talked to students. Um, and just starting to question why was that happening? How could I, and, and that wasn't anything to do with the children's campaign. I had a lot of freedom and autonomy to go do that if I had wanted to. I don't think I was mature enough or comfortable enough to know how to do that. And so, um, but I think like most people that start to explore this work, once you turn that on, you can't turn it off and you don't want to turn it off. And so I think, um, you know, I've gotten to just continue to explore that. And I've, I'm very grateful to all the partners that I have that have helped push me on that journey to say, you know, okay, this is how, you know, you, you're saying this, you know how this is coming off, or here's my perspective and their willingness to be vulnerable and share with me. And, um, and I think getting really comfortable with 
with inherent bias and just knowing that there are things that I am never going to have experienced, never um, known, and that can be anything from I've, I've never been a classroom teacher, and that was always something I try to compensate for with being really good at policy, and it's like true, true, unrelated to have more teachers around you. Yeah. And the same goes definitely for um, having different perspectives and um, if, if that's across, across race and ethnicity and income. Um, and so I think I've just gotten to explore that and, um, and then I got hooked on it. So Climb Higher is this avenue where I get to continue to do that. Yeah. So fun questions now. Although these yeah. are all, hopefully these are all been fun yes, questions. Yes, very fun. Right? Uh, best vacation you've ever you've ever taken? Mm. I will say I've gotten I I'm spoiled I'm I love travel, um, but the first thing that popped into mind was going to Tulum, Mexico, with my husband for our honeymoon, and it was wonderful. It, so Tulum is, is a magical place. It is. It truly is. There, yeah. it's the it's beautiful and the people are incredible and. You've got the mix of jungle and ocean, yeah, and it's, right you know, when you have that little escape, I'm going to run away and, and never come back. That's where I think I'd go to. Yeah, Tulum's really special. It definitely has that, you know, you're, you're on the beach, you cross the street, you're at this amazing <laughs> restaurant, yeah. uh, and it's just a beautiful spot. Yeah. Um, and so uh, your most ideal dinner party ever. Like, who's there? Who's there? What does it look like? Yeah. Oh. Um, well, I think... Um, uh, the number one person is Madeline Albright, who um, I have read all of her books and been a huge fan of for a very long time. She's an incredible woman. Uh, woman. Uh, Toni Morrison is my favorite author, so I'd, I'd throw her in. I I feel like I could make this dinner party very large, so I will. Um, I will say like I would have a mix of friends and family there too I think yeah. usually it's just incredible famous people yeah. um, and it would be somewhere outdoors where we would have you know an open bar and fabulous yeah. food and just stay all night and just hanging out yes well, that's a beautiful image to end on <laughs> yes thanks for your time today Ryan. yes thank you Thanks to everyone for joining us today. Uh, thanks to Riley. Uh, really appreciated her perspective on open systems, building the coalition, that historical perspective, and why it's so important to lead from a co-creation stance. Um, thanks to everyone participating. It's been really great these last few months and all the feedback I've been getting. Um, thanks for enjoying. Feel free to keep sending ideas my way and look forward to seeing you in April when we have another conversation um, about open system work. Thanks, everyone.